Welcome to Julius Baer's True Connections podcast, where we hear from entrepreneurs, industry leaders, and financial experts on their views on today's world. This time, Callum speaks with Alice Thwaite, journalist, speaker, and founder of the Echo Chamber Club, on how organizations can utilize artificial intelligence and what role ethics plays in business. Alice, how are you? Hello, I'm very well. Thanks for having me. How are you? Yeah, great. Excellent. Thank you very much. Alice, what would maybe help our listeners is if you maybe told us a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today. I teach ethics to technology professionals, both at General Assembly and at Experience House and at various different festivals, I suppose, around the UK, America and Europe. And that's very much from a philosophical perspective. I actually have been trained in ethics. I have been trained in philosophy there. And I also run a think tank, which the Echo Chamber Club has developed into, which examines what makes democratic information environment actually healthy. So that incorporates everything through from information warfare and disinformation through to content moderation, harm, echo chambers, data politics, data rights, that kind of thing. So there's a lot on my plate, really. There's a lot on your plate and a really interesting journey. To maybe help those who are listening, could you maybe expand on what you actually mean by an echo chamber? Oh, yeah. An echo chamber is really a metaphor and it means a variety of different things to different people. When I talk about echo chambers, I think about closely knit communities that have a shared language or a shared discourse. So a great example is I do a lot of sewing in my spare time and there's words that I would use around theming, around various different tools, like a clapper, for instance, is a very specialized tailored tool for pressing. But when you type in clapper onto Google, you tend to get like the film clapper. So it means two different things. So the echo chamber is the context. It's the community that would understand that language. And people can be a part of many different echo chambers, actually. And you're quite versatile being able to speak all these various different languages. I think the issue comes to a head when individuals perhaps don't realize that someone might be speaking a slightly different version of English to them because the heuristics just aren't there online. So it's very difficult to recognize that someone might be speaking a slightly different language to you. And that becomes very apparent in political political discourse where someone might use the word feminist and that might evoke different definitions and emotions to two different groups. And that's where you kind of get outrage. Yeah, and actually it really intrigues me and it's something that comes up often around about the use of language. We see that across many things, just need to look at the news on a daily basis on the interpretation of language and how it can create polarisation, disagreement and stimulation of debate. Do you see with social media, digital content, that debate and disagreement polarisation is getting greater and do you believe that's a healthy thing that encourages progress or do you have a different perspective on it on the work that you're doing? Interestingly, phrasing the question this way is relatively new. So the concept of an echo chamber really got put into the academic sphere, I suppose, in about 2001 with a book by Cass Sunstein called Republic 2.0. And so then there was a lot of research which was into whether or not social media and the internet would create this daily me, this kind of personalized environment where you wouldn't be able to access to any different points of view. It was only really in about 2015 that this was proved absolutely not to be the case. And so the research when it comes to polarization and disagreement online really isn't there because it's been so focused on an idea which has then been disproven. Having said this, there's some great reports coming out right now. So there's just been one produced by King's College London, which is about polarization in the UK. 
Because again, the only statistics that we actually had were coming out of America, and the American political environment is very different to what's going on in the UK, in Europe. I've no idea what's going on in China. But if you're making a generalized claim about the internet, then you've really got to look at these geographic cultures. So I can't really answer that question. And I would be very wary of anyone who feels that they can, because a lot of what goes on is anecdotal evidence. One of the things I think you are working on, you mentioned developing an AI index, and I was intrigued to learn a little bit more about that. Great question. And this has been one of a very challenging project to work on, because I start off with methodology. So it's kind of interesting when people talk about it as a technology, because it is kind of a technology, but it is more of a methodology in the same way that reading and writing is a methodology. It's like a method of communication. I think of AI as being like a partial expression of human intelligence. So if you think about the fact that it relies on logic and math and these binary noughts and ones, and then you have data plus an algorithm that creates an output, that's literally just a methodology and it doesn't encompass the whole of human intelligence because you know, we're emotional, irrational creatures sometimes, but it definitely interpret part of it. And then it can accelerate that and do rationality incredibly well, if that makes sense. So that's one thing to say about AI is that it is very much a new kind of intelligence and one that definitely is a partial expression of human intelligence, but is very different from it. When you think about incorporating AI into your business, it's very much, and again, these things have been said for quite a few years, if not decades now. It's all about making sure that you have the right question to ask the AI and that you also ensure that the values that you don't think of the AI as being neutral, right? If it is a partial expression of human intelligence, it is something which will necessarily have human biases ingrained into it. And if you then scale up that intelligence in the way that AI can do, you're then going to amplify these very different biases that might be seen in the data. So it's definitely not something that can be seen as objective. Um, so you really need to think very carefully about the questions that you're asking the AI and whether or not those are A, questions that you really want to answer, and B, about whether or not you're doing the checks and balances to make sure that it's not going to impact minority groups or disadvantaged groups or even majority groups in a negative way, in a way that you wouldn't see as part of, I suppose, a utopian society. Third question about the AI index. So there's two parts to this. I think indexes are always something where it's a good thing to be at the top of the index, right? So you look at the slavery index, probably a good thing to be at the bottom of that index, but there's, <laughs> there's some sort of idea around the fact that you want to create some sort of change in behavior. And when it comes to the AI index, it's something that tortoises were asked to do by various different governments and also various different companies to help them understand how can we start to integrate AI better into our national strategy, how can we create products that are actually good for society. And one thing that we're doing is we're creating two indexes. So one is a kind of a capacity index, which has three main pillars, which are implementation, which means the way that AI is being implemented in your society. So think about commercial organizations, practitioners, that kind of thing. Then you've got innovation, which is all to do with academic organizations or perhaps non-academic organizations who are trying to improve the fundamental algorithms, the data collection, these very different things that can then be papered to pass on to practitioners. And the third one is investment. So what investment is going into the AI sector, both from government and public and private actors. But then no one really wants to just have more AI. There needs to be more AI that's well regulated. So we're creating another index which looks at AI for good. And that's currently what I'm scratching my head about now. Think about the various different metrics and framework that can go into place there. But it's a very interesting project because ultimately we are trying to create change in the industry. But we also want to do this in a way that means that people 
understand our methodology, that it's incredibly transparent, that they can manipulate the data themselves, that they can really dive into the project and see what can be done and can't be done, which countries have come top in one area and perhaps not in another, why those discrepancies might be in place. So it is quite delicate and it is incredibly challenging and interesting. Great. And I was actually just reading last week a book about human evolution and it was talking very much from the development from being hunter-gatherers through to the agricultural revolution, through to the industrial and into the technology age just now. And it really intrigued that speed and acceleration. And I think at this moment in time, and I'm sure you sense it and see it with the work that you do, that certain cultures, industries and individuals feel an element of threat, concern round about technology, artificial intelligence and use of data. We're possibly seeing people being a lot more precious round about their data and how they use technology. And some of that may have led from what we saw happening at the US elections on the back of that. Do you see there's a resistance in relation of sharing data and how that feeds into ethics within organisations? Or is it how it's actually utilised and the controls round about it? I couldn't really speak for behaviour of consumers, but I do have a perspective on what should be done. And I wrote a report for the Oxtech Commission, which was the Oxford Technology and Elections Commission, which was all around how should we regulate digital advertising as democracy. And one of the things that it always comes back to, I mean, you mentioned kind of the Cambridge Analytica scandal, and you mentioned all of these various different ways that data is being abused. A lot of these are rested on, um, and I'm going to use a word here, consequentialist arguments. So if something bad happens as a result of doing this, then it's bad. But I think that actually we should value privacy for privacy's sake to ensure that no one can do bad things with our data. So I'm very much on the data rights perspective. I think so the GDPR, which I'm sure is something that most of your listeners are familiar with, really did put the framework in place to ensure that people could have control over their data, but it's just not being enforced correctly by governments right now. So for me, this isn't actually something about kind of consumers and whether consumers think that data privacy is a good thing and whether or not they're reluctant to share it or not. Actually, it's very difficult to know where your data is going to go, and there needs to be a lot of education around the ramifications of giving away your data and the manipulation and the influence that can then happen afterwards. And despite what area in the political spectrum that you're on, whether or not you value equality or freedom or whatever, this should be a concern to every single one of us, but it just hasn't been communicated very well. So I'm very much for data privacy, data rights, and I love organizations like Privacy International, which I think are rebranding to Free to be Human and Article 19 and Access Now, all these organizations that are trying to ensure that our data remains secure and that we are as a person, I'm in control of the data that means that companies think a specific way about me. So that's definitely my position on the topic. And yeah, it's a really interesting subject of data rights. And I think what we've seen recently, and again, when we talked about different generations, that education has been very different. So when I think about my own generation, we probably have been for a long time quite naive on how the data that you're building can and will be utilised elsewhere. So there's a big piece around about education. And it leads me to my next question, because when I was doing background reading on yourself, there was something that really jumped out at me on your own website that talked about the imperatives of mutual recognition. And I loved the quote that said, how can we be different and still get along? And right alongside it, there's a picture saying, consume criticism. I would love you to evolve that statement, how can we be different and still get along? Because I think at times some of that data is being misused 
and it's creating friction. So what do you mean when you say how can we be different and still get along? I think this comes back to the work I'm doing around echo chambers, which is just trying to rephrase this idea of, you know, in a democracy, we don't all want to be the same because that means that you're an authoritarian government. So we want to value plurality. Um, but difference is very jarring. And as you've identified, people are feeling a little bit threatened and there are various different macroeconomic and technological factors which are leading to that change, particularly also political factors which are perhaps inspired by both the macroeconomic and technological change. So how can we be different and still get along? If you start thinking about it in that way, it's both inspiring confidence in individuals to make changes, and so that's why I think the education piece comes in, and it's also inspiring difference in design, where technology companies can perhaps design their technology to allow for what I call mutual recognition. So there's a vast body of philosophy going back to Hegel, who I'm a huge fan of, on recognition. And yeah, if you go on my website and read the article on open democracy, it's something that I'm really quite proud of, and it's a line of work that I'm still developing. Rather, and if we think about the design of technology platforms and how we can inspire, I suppose, mutual recognition, understanding, really understand that although you might be different from me in a small way, we still have a vast body of shared interests and commonality, and then trying to make sure that we see each other in those kind of lights rather than just this polarizing light where we just see our differences. Hopefully, this is huge philosophical stuff that I'm trying to <laughs> condense into a very short period of time, but hopefully it inspires some curiosity to go and find out some more about the subject. No, it's interesting reading it. It's a term, and I think it relates very much to what you're doing about how you see the evolution of the world. We're driving more to that truly globalization of the planet, where there's more and more consistency and more relevance, but at the same time, and we see it in our own profession in wealth management, people still want to be treated and viewed as an individual, although there's great commonality. And I think, if I understand you correctly, that's the theme of what you're talking about there. There's three different parts of it. So one is self-confidence, so it's the confidence to be yourself, to recognize that your thoughts and emotions actually matter, even if they might be irrational. The fact that you are angry is something that matters or you are happy is something that matters. The other one is around respect. So respect is about the fact that when you see someone else, you recognize that they also have the emotions that mean something to them and you respect that as a human. You say, well, you are another human and I give you human rights and you recognize my human rights. And the third one is all around esteem. So it's, okay, yes, we have this commonality, which is that we're human and we deserve these rights, but you might be an excellent, I don't know, shoemaker, and I'm an excellent wealth manager, and we need both of these skills to flourish in a society. So I hold your difference in esteem, I respect our similarities, and I am confident in my own identity and my own emotions and who I am. And it's my opinion that and, you know, again, millennials, there's been a lot of criticism towards my generation, as they probably have been towards every generation. But one that is levied against us quite often is narcissism. But honestly, I think that my generation is one, and perhaps the generation before me, that has lost a considerable amount of self-confidence. And all of this has to start with self-confidence. It all has to start with valuing yourself. Because I think it was Oprah Winfrey who said, if you can't love yourself, then you can't love anyone else. So really taking it back to basics is trying to instill some more self-confidence in people and make them feel good about who they are, which then relates to arguments around mental health and that kind of thing. But recognition and the philosophy of recognition has a lot to offer in this space and has a lot to offer, I think, many different siloed academic industries and also commercial industries as well. It's very interesting.
And when you speak and when you write, Alice, in many ways you're sort of forecasting what you see coming ahead of us. When you do look ahead and into the future over the next three to five years, is there any particular themes that you see coming through that will become more consistent, more relevant to business and how we operate on a global scale? Oh, thank you. I think that's a compliment that I can't really... (laughs) I don't really know that. I don't call myself a futurist in any way. I think... There are some changes that I'm trying to make in society. So I'm probably more of an activist than a futurist in the sense that I'm trying to inspire change. And whether or not that will happen, I mean, we haven't even spoken about climate change at all, whether or not that will happen, which the reason I bring that up is because that's probably the biggest activist movement going on in the Western world right now. I don't know. So I can't make any predictions. And I would also be very wary of people who say that they can right now because there is so much going on. So in that way, it's quite an exciting opportunity because then you can be someone who makes the difference. You know, there is no inevitable future that's coming. So either be fearful of that or be very excited about the fact that you can create some change. Well, maybe I've asked the question in a slightly different way. If you were to have three wishes to activate real change just now, you just mentioned the current debate around about global and climate change. What would your wishes be? What would you want to try to activate that we put more energy and enthusiasm behind right now? Well, obviously, I'm going to say something that's quite personal. I would love there to be genuine innovation. I'd love there to be genuine curious about new ideas. I think that everyone bangs on about innovation, but the reality is, is that they only really see the potential in things that are only slightly different to the norm. So that would be one way that I'd like the world to change. I don't really know how that's going to really happen, to be honest, because naturally people are quite conservative about where they put their money and that kind of thing. I'm not going to say too much about climate change because I'm not particularly in that space, but climate certainly does worry me. And I also am very aware of the very different marketing campaigns that cause us to ban plastic straws when the real problem is elsewhere. But the climate is definitely something that worries me quite a lot. And I'd love that if you are in a position where you can make a difference to emissions or plastic, that you pursue that for no other reason than it's the right thing to do. And what's the third wish? I wish I had more time to sew. (laughs) Is that a good one? Well, Alice, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Thanks for sharing some of your views, thoughts and expertise. It's been a delight. And I look forward to speaking again soon. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. And please do keep in touch with us on Twitter, LinkedIn and at juliusbear.com. 